I want to imagine a moment uh, with me, if you would. I know it's going to be hard to imagine this, but just go with me uh, for a minute. You're talking on the phone uh, with somebody. You're talking with an aunt you haven't spoken with in a long time, a friend uh, that you've been waiting for a phone call from, and you're in the middle of this conversation, and someone walks into the house, looks at you, notices that you're on the phone and says to you, who are you talking to? Anybody been there in your life before? Anyone? Um, anyone been the person who was like, hey, who are you talking to? Anyone really brave? All right, some of us. So like many of us have been in a moment like that. And if you're on the phone talking to someone, you're like, I'm on the phone. Would you just wait a second? And so you'll, maybe not with your words, but I can remember like my mom growing up being like, <laughs> she's on the phone with somebody. And I want you to, to think about that desire to know what is going on, to know about the conversation, like what's being said, what's being shared, who is that person. We call that space in between what we know and what we don't know. That desire to know is called context. And context is the what of the scriptures. And so anytime we come to the scriptures, we need to understand that the world that the scriptures were written to and can I just tell you that the scriptures originally were not written to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 2020. We're coming after these were written to a specific people in a specific time, to a specific moment. And so we need to understand all of that. Like we're having a conversation in our house right now. Um, about the, you know, the bingo song. There was a farmer had a dog and bingo was his name. You know what I'm talking about? B I N. Okay, good. I got some heads. I can't see your faces, so I need your heads and your arms and whatever you have available. So there was a farmer had a dog, and Bingo was his name. -o. B I N G O. And I've been asking my boys, well, who's like who's Bingo? Is Bingo the farmer, or is Bingo the dog? Because there was a farmer, and he had a dog, and Bingo was his name. -o. And they've been very frustrated with me. <laughs> Because they're like, duh, dad. And so my four-year-old said to me recently, name a farmer you know whose name is Bingo. Which is an incredible point. And so I want to remind us, church, that we're always doing context. We know that, yes, Bingo is the dog. Because people named their dogs those kinds of names. That's context. That's using your contextual skills to help you understand something. And I just want to encourage the American church to use context as we come to the scriptures, as we come to the Bible, because there are some places in the scriptures that are a little bit mm, tricky. And so we need context as we come to them. And the question in context is, it's not like, what does it mean for us? The question in context is like, what did it mean for them? It's, it's tempting, I think, for us to have like a, a breaking news approach to the Gospels, to the Scripture, and not a historical lens. 
And so it's not just, hey, this is what's happening like tonight at 6 p.m. No, it's not a breaking news posture towards the Bible, but a historical one. And so we've been in this book of Colossians. It's this letter that Paul writes to this Jesus community, and we've said many times, it's, it's not a community of followers of Jesus that have been following for a long time, and there's a, there's a heritage of faith, and that they know a lot about the kingdom of God, and, and what the work of God in the world is. Like, they're coming to know this stuff in real time. Like, they don't necessarily have someone older that they can ask about, hey, what does this mean? How, how does it, what does it actually look like to live the Jesus way? Like, they're working this all out. And Paul makes this shift in this letter. In chapter 3, he says, hey, therefore is God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Like, put on all of these things. And that's where we're last week. He makes a shift from the spiritual family, speaking to the spiritual family, to speaking to the physical family. And so today, the Apostle Paul wants to talk about what's taking place in the home. And before we talk about what's taking place in the home, we just need to lay something all out on the table. And we all come into this room today with different kinds of home experiences. There are different kinds of wounds that we walk into this room with in the context of family. There's different things that we celebrate based on the family that we came from. And so it's really tempting on a day like today when we start talking about home is to talk about regret, to feel regret. Like, oh, I wish I would have done this differently when the kids were young. Or, oh, I wish my parents would have done this differently. I wish I would have been able to experience this thing. And so what we need to be able to do when we come to this text today is to understand that the, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the resurrected one, has the power to make all things new. And that includes your experience as a child in the home you grew up in, that includes your experience as the parent in the home that you are in now. Because guess what? It's possible to have wounds on both ends of that. I was a youth pastor for almost 13 years. And I became increasingly convinced that parents have as many wounds as kids do. But the God of the Bible is the one who has come to heal and repair and restore because what a lot of kids don't understand about parents is that parents have a doctorate degree in guilt. They're really good at the end of the night when everybody's in bed and lay in bed and you think about all the stuff you would have done differently. They're really good at that. And so if you're a kid living in a home, it's just good to remember that the God of the Bible, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the resurrected one is able to make everything new. So even if this morning didn't go super awesome, just guessing, there's maybe a family or two that just got off the tracks just a little bit. I don't have an experience with that, but I'm just telling you that it's possible that that happens from time to time. 
I want all of us this morning to be able to confess with one mind and heart and mouth that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, is able to make all things new. So to talk about the home. Uh, the home is uh, the place where living the Jesus way is really critical. It's really critical to live the Jesus way in the context of the home. Why? Uh, because it's the place where you are most yourself. Uh, there are things that you will wear inside of your home that you will not wear outside of your home. Amen? Uh, there are some patterns, some habits that you have inside of your home. Like Saturday morning, 10 a.m., you maybe have something different on than you do right now. That's just kind of how we are. And it's possible to have, for this divide, there's be this divide between what happens in the home and what happens outside of the home. Paul wants to talk about the home today. And so we need to talk about homes that are committed to Jesus. Homes that are committed to living the Jesus way provide us with the freedom to be ourselves and also to establish rules that help us live the Jesus way. So rules aren't bad. Rules do not equal prison. Rules can actually bring freedom to live the way of Jesus. So with all of that, uh, Colossians chapter 3 for those of you who are thinking, bro, Christmas is coming, you need to hurry this up. Uh, last Next week, we're going to do all of chapter four in one sitting, all right? So, and then we'll jump into Christmas on the 29th. Richie Hutchinson's going to kick off our Advent series I'm really excited about. So that's coming. So don't worry. I know what time it is. Colossians chapter three. The heading in my Bible says, rules for Christian households. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. The Lord, Father, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there's no favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, see, I told you I was going to get to chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So here's what I love about what Paul does, is Paul balances rights and responsibilities for everybody that's living in the home. So if in the culture of the day you had a, a place of power in the culture, Paul says, hey, you have some rights. You have some things that you deserve to receive, to experience, to know, but you also have some duties. And so each member of the family works that way. So wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. 
Like children, obey your parents and everything. Fathers, don't be harsh. There's this balance that needs to exist in the family. This is a Christmas present that took me till two in the morning in 2016 to put together. Isn't it awesome? It's a little seesaw uh, that my kids uh, like to use. And no, I can't fit inside there, but thanks for bringing it up. But the Apostle Paul wants the church, as they think about the households that they live in, to think about how it is that you are interacting with one another. Uh, in the Roman world, we, last week we talked about this idea in the Roman world, philotimia. Uh, philotimia is uh, a love of honor and status. And so the Roman world was built around philotimia, a love of honor and a love of status, seeking to be honored and seeking to have status. But this week I want to tell you about another portion of the Roman world, this idea, patria potestas. Patria potestas is paternal power. So in the Roman world, in the ancient world, men carried a lot of power. In the Roman world, fathers and husbands and slave owners, they in many ways ruled the world. And we even see this in the architecture of the day. There's a model of an ancient home that some students from Harvard uh, University put together. You can kind of tell there's really two stories. So if you're like, hey, I've always wanted a two-story home, here you go. Here's a two-story home that you could have had. And you can notice there would have been a place for animals. There would have been a place uh, for where kids would have slept. Um, there even was a place uh, where wives would sleep. And then there were stairs leading up. And so many men would sleep on that second floor. And so literally what was happening is that everybody else lived underneath the feet of the man. Underneath his control underneath his power. So you can see it being worked out in the architecture. But we need to say today that, you know, life with God does not instantly erase the existing social structure of the day. But what life with God does is it necessitates that the social structure needs to bow to Jesus, needs to bow to his authority. And understand him as the ruler of the universe. Him as the ultimate power. So there's three sections. Section one, Paul talks to wives, husbands, children, and parents. He speaks to those people in the home. And Paul's offering a balance in this. From neither party, wives don't get to be arrogant or domineering, and neither do husbands. And submission which is a little bit of a word where you're like, ooh, I don't think I like that word. I think I hate that word. I don't want to submit to anybody. In fact, some of you are doing this right now. And it's just the way that you interact with this idea. But what's so powerful about the gospel is that the gospel reframes all of those things in the Jesus way. So let me show you. So the call to submission is not a call to be a slave. It's not a call to be a doormat. Paul's not walking back what he has said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he says this. It's going to be up on the screen. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's not walking that back. 
but he does want to talk about the, the call to submission. It's this word in Greek, hypotasso. And so this week I started wondering, I wonder where hypotasso shows up in the scriptures. I wonder if it's something that is more than just based on one's gender. I wonder if hypotasso is actually a condition of heart. I wonder if it's possible to live in a hypotasso kind of way. I wonder if it's possible. I wonder if it shows up in the scripture. Well, amazing, I counted 36 times in the New Testament, hypotasso shows up and you're asking me to tell you where and how and what it is, so I will tell you. So Hebrews 12, 9 and James 4, 7, all believers are called to submit to God. Romans 8, 7, all believers are called to submit to his law. Ephesians 5, 24, the church is called to submit to Christ. Romans 10, 3, Jews are called to submit to God's righteousness. Romans 13, Titus 3 and Peter 2, humans are called to submit to governing authorities. 1 Corinthians 16, Christians are supposed to are called to submit to their leaders. Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, 18, slaves are called to submit to their masters. 1 Peter 5, 5, young men are called to submit to older men. Luke 2, 51, children are called to submit to their parents. It's all over the place. And you're saying, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament, I'll tell you, it's in there 38 times. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, this verb, hypotasso, is found 38 times in the Old Testament. So what's true of people who claim God as their king, their savior, their Lord? What's true of them is that they're all called the hypotasso. So if you're sitting in this room today, you are called to a hypotasso kind of life. A life that submits. That submits to God and to others. This word hypotasso really means yield. And I love the qualifier that Paul puts on this. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Interesting that we never get to that part of it. Interesting that we just get to the submit to your husbands. It's like the elbow passage in church. And that's a way to abuse scripture. As is fitting in the Lord. This is a passage with baggage, as I like to say. Partly because we don't understand the full context of what is going on. So let's talk about husbands. We talk about wives. Let's talk about husbands. Husbands are called to make sure that his love for his wife, like Christ's for the world, puts her interests above his own. So husbands, love your wives. What's that word? Well, that word is this word agapao, which means to love. What kind of love is it? It's a self-emptying, sacrificial love. So remember the seesaw. Like yield to one another and love one another in what kind of way? Sacrificially. So it's not a love that, that only consumes, that only pours into one's heart and soul and life, but it is a love that is self-emptying. And so I think it's just a good opportunity for us to pause the message just for a minute and to ask ourselves, like, do we love like that? Do we love in a self-emptying way, in a yielding way? Or do we love in a consuming way? What can I get from this person? That is not the way 
of Jesus. Husbands are called to make sure that they do not treat her harshly. And I think there's a couple of ways we can think about this, like harsh treatment. I think we can treat one another harshly in our thoughts towards them. I think we can have like harsh thoughts about somebody. And you're thinking harsh thoughts when like there's not really compassion, there's not really mercy, there's not really kindness. I think we can be harsh in our words. Kind of a harsh word with somebody. An intense moment. But I think we can also be harsh in our expectations. And if you pushed me today to ask, and you asked me, okay, like, where does the rubber meet the road with this treating harshly? Where does it show up in most homes? I would say it's in expectations. I think a lot of us have harsh expectations towards those we are in relationship with. And we have harsh expectations of one another when we don't have clear expectations. So I love Brene Brown. She talks about clear is kind, unclear is unkind. So maybe the best thing that we can do is to have a conversation with those we are in relationship with, our kids, our parents, coworkers, other people. Because you think about people who are in your house, in your space. Like, are there clear expectations about what this relationship looks like? Because if not, it's very easy to treat them harshly, to have harsh thoughts about them, to have harsh language towards them, and to have harsh expectations of them. Husbands are called to resist resenting the person that, her, her, that his wife is. Becoming bitter and angry when she turns out to be like him, an actual human. And not a Barbie. More than a fulfillment of all that he wants. So good rule for households today. It's just this. Don't expect from someone else what you have which you haven't already given to them. So let's not expect from somebody else what we have not already given to them. The key to this, I think, is to, I love you enough to tell you the truth, and I respect you enough to hear the truth from you. So submission, we're called to submit as is fitting in the Lord. So as the people in our homes are living the way of Jesus, yield. As the people in our homes are living out the words of the Sermon on the Mount, the way of Jesus, we're called to yield. But it's not blind yielding. It's not yielding because of gender. It's yielding because of what? Because of obedience. Because this person is living the way of Jesus. What if their life would actually call me to something greater and more beautiful? to a self-emptying, sacrificial love. So Paul says, wives, yield. Yield to the work of Jesus in your husband's life. And husbands, love your wives. And don't be harsh with them. Love them with a self-emptying love. And I just believe the place where you're going to see that self-emptying love is maybe not in your life, but in hers. So can we take a lesson from one another? I think Paul wants there to be balance in the home. Don't email me yet. Let me finish. And then when I'm all done, you can decide if you want to email me or not. 
It's just Caleb at invitation605.com. So then something amazing happens. Paul breaks, I'm sorry, um, Paul breaks a new ground. And he leaves the wife conversation, the husband conversation, and he talks about children. This is amazing that in the Roman world, children were not special. They were not valued. They were not treated with dignity and worth. But Paul says when Jesus comes, when resurrection happens, everything changes. And so children are brought into the conversation. And so Paul is supposing that, hey, children are around in the church and they're listening and they're hearing to what is being talked about and taught. He says, children, obey your parents. Watch this. No elbowing in everything. Obey your parents in everything. And I think the idea is that obedience in the home cultivates character outside of the home. I think like obedience in the home cultivates a kind of character when you leave that place. And so as your parents, children, ask things of you that line up with the Jesus way, obey them. Like as your parents live the way of Jesus, as your parents live out the Sermon on the Mount, as your parents love and honor and serve Jesus, yield to them, follow them in that way. And of course, it's going to involve doing some things that you would not want to do. Has Jesus ever called you before in your life to do something you didn't want to do? Has that ever happened? Probably once or twice or every hour it happens. So children, obey your parents in everything. I think Paul wants us to understand it's not just the big moments, but I think it's the small moments. So children, would you obey your parents in the small moments as a way to have a transformed life? It's, I think, easy to either overemphasize or ignore verse 20. And if we overemphasize verse 20, we ignore verse 21, then we become focused on discipline as parents as like our primary calling. It's like we're wearing the t-shirt that says, born to be a discipline agent. We can approach it like that. We overemphasize verse 20 and we ignore verse 21, but it's also the reverse is possible too. To overemphasize verse 21 and to ignore verse 20, to, to allow kids to trample over everyone and everything that keeps them from happiness. Like if you're in the way of my happiness... I'm going to run you over. It's possible to have a home like that. And so if you're a kid today and you're here in this moment, I would like for you, not right now, but sometime soon, to turn to your parent and to say that you need discipline. Because it's true. They need discipline. They need to live a disciplined life. But then once you've told them that they need discipline, I want you to put your hand on your heart and tell yourself, so do I. His parents need discipline. So do you. So pick a moment, pick a good moment, maybe not like at lunch, depending on how the morning went, or maybe not right now, but to kind of have that kind of household where we understand that we all need the discipline of Christ. 
And then he talks about fathers. And not just fathers, but fathers and mothers, too. The word in the original language kind of bears that out. Do not embitter your children or provoke them. There's this amazing movie called The Sandlot, and it's about a bunch of kids playing baseball. And the baseball goes over the fence, and there's this, like, giant dog monster thing that lives over there. And they're trying to figure out a way. The whole movie is mostly about trying to get their baseball back. But they have to get their baseball back without provoking the beast. I think in relationship, I think we stand in danger of being provoked by somebody else. Of just like picking at somebody. And Paul's like, no, like fathers and mothers, do not provoke your children. Do not embitter them. Don't discipline a child in such a way that they experience this idea in Greek, anthemeo. Anthemeo is a loss of heart. And so when a child has a balloon and the wind picks up like it does in South Dakota and they lose the balloon, they're experiencing anthemeo, like a loss of heart. Or on a nice, warm, blistering day and they have an ice cream cone and they're licking it as fast as they can before it melts and it falls on the ground and they're experiencing anthemeo, a loss of heart. And the question for the parents in the room today is like, do we discipline in that way so that there is a loss of heart? And how does loss of heart happen? I think loss of heart can be experienced in our tone that we use with our kids. I think it can happen in our volume that we use with our kids. I think a loss of heart on Tama'o can happen in labeling that happens in homes. You always do this. Like, why can't you ever? Paul calls us to a higher way. He calls us to submission and self-emptying love. So Paul says, resist belittling a child, refusing to allow them to be their own unique person and not a carbon copy of the precious angel that you yourself obviously are. Kids who grow up hearing verbally or non-verbally that they are of little value come to believe it. So if that's not what we're called to, what are we called to? Like, what are we called to as parents? I think it's this. To live out the gospel to your kid. That before the child should hear the gospel from someone with a microphone on his or her face, they should hear and experience it from you. To assure and to show them that they are loved and accepted for who they are. Not for who they ought to be, should have been, or might become if they would only try harder. Of course there's rules. Of course there's expectations. We just don't use shame to transform kids. We just don't use shame to bring about the kind of character and behavior that we want. What do we use? We use submission and we use self-emptying sacrificial love. Why? Because we have seen that in the person of Jesus. So the truth this morning is that some parents have walked through seasons with their children that were very undesirable. And they have the wounds to prove it. And the truth this morning is that some children have walked through seasons with their parents that were very undesirable. And they have the wounds to prove it. 
But what is also true is that the, the author of the gospel knows something about wounds. It's why he's come to repair and to heal and restore wounds. So even if the person in the context of your family is no longer here, that the possibility exists for the loving, gracious, powerful, victorious Jesus to bring healing to your life. Whether you're a child or you're an adult this morning or you're an adult child. So that's section two. And then the last section. He wants to talk uh, he wants to talk to slaves. He says to the slaves, obey your master in everything, not just when you're being observed. Remember that whatever you're doing, you are doing for the Lord. So the task might seem unimportant or trivial, but the person doing the task is never unimportant or trivial. And then he says, you know that you will receive a reward from the Lord in the life to come. Can you imagine that? Like you don't own anything. You live in this household with, a, with an owner and with a family and with animals and there's work to do. And imagine understanding that what I'm experiencing now is not what I will always experience. What I long for someday will come. Because I serve a God who called a whole bunch of slaves out of Egypt. And he spent every waking moment since he called them out to help them understand that they have been called out. It's like, I don't own any land now. But I will walk one day into the land of promise. And then he talks to slave owners. And I have to tell you the thing that I struggle with most probably in the entire Bible. The thing that trips me up, trips me up most is that the New Testament writers never condemn slavery. We never hear from Paul that all of the slave owners should claim freedom for all of the slaves that lived in their households. It continued to happen. So these Israelite Hebrew people who lived for generations and generations and generations and generations under the feet of Pharaoh have not fully grasped what has happened to them to an extent that they would proclaim freedom for the slaves that lived in their home. It's the thing I struggle with most. But I think it's a picture for how powerful the culture that we live in is in shaping our soul. Because I think for Paul to tell the Colossian people, proclaim freedom for all of your slaves, would be about as effective as me speaking against the use of automobiles today. You know, that invitation church, mm -mm. no more cars, y'all. You're going to be walking. That Fitbit number is going to... And so culture is a powerful discipler. 
But Paul does something beautiful, I think, though, in this. But he doesn't protest against the institution of slavery. He does something a little more sneaky. He picks a point to drive home as a way to move them toward a new way. He says that the slaves living in your home are human beings with rights. And if you're a slave owner, it's important that you know that you are also a slave. You are slaves of one master, and his name is Jesus. And he gets to say how things go. He gets to set the table. And so there's a, there's a question that is at the end of this passage. As we've talked about the home, as we've talked about wives, and we've talked about husbands, and we've talked about children, and we've talked about parents, and we've talked about slaves, and we've talked about slave owners, all of these different people inside this first century home. And the question that I think it, it brings for us is that if home is the place where we are most ourselves, if home is the place when we are, where we are most comfortable showing other people who we are, what we love, what's valuable to us, is there gospel fruit laying around? Like if home's the place where we're most ourselves, if home is the place where the, the real Dave comes out, the true Dave, the genuine Dave, if home is the place where we are most ourselves, is there gospel fruit that's visible? And I'm not talking about like artificial fruit. Thanks, Hobby Lobby. You were crazy yesterday, just saying. But gospel fruit. Like real fruit. Like the, the kind of fruit that Jesus, Jesus desires of his people and of his church. Because a lot of us have these bowls on our kitchen table, right? Just in case we forget how to cook and we need something to eat, we can just grab it. And my heart for us as a community of faith, for this church, is to be people who live lives that exemplify and share and show and produce the kind of fruit that is produced in the life of Jesus, because that's the way that we're called to. We sang it today, the way, the truth, and the life. So if home is the place where we're most ourselves, is there visible gospel fruit so that if someone just happened to pop over, which I know doesn't happen these days very much anymore, if it's not October 31st, trick-or-treating time, is there genuine gospel fruit being produced? And if not, if you know that there's some ways in which you can shift the words that come out of your mouth, the tone that you use with other people, the expectations that you have of other people. If there's a shift that you know that you can make so that you can take a fake orange from Hobby Lobby and turn it to an orange with juice inside that gives life, that nourishes. 
what needs to change between now and the end of the year so that that might be true, so that we might stand here a year from now with all of this gospel fruit permeating our homes. Because if it is true in your home, it can be true in the world. But I just need to tell you with the Apostle Paul, if it's not true in your home, it can't be true in the world. It's not true, it's not real, it's not genuine, and it's not what we're called to. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your way. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your life. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for these wonderful people who are here today. Thank you for their friendship. Thank you for their partnership. Thank you for the work you are doing within them. God, we're, we're asking, we're inviting you to change us, to transform us, to help us, to empower us, to be more fully the people that you have made for us to be. So God, we, we're open. We're open to your voice. We're open to your word. We're open to your spirit so that we may lead the kind of lives that cause other people to, to wonder and to question. Like, should the, should the world be shaping me the way it's shaping me? Should it be discipling me the way that it has been discipling me? Or should the words and way of Jesus have greater authority and rule and power in my life? Thank you for this place and this time. And these words spoken over us today, we give you thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.